0: Hi, I'm Angela Lucier, a professional public speaker, seven-time author, two-time TEDx speaker, and CEO and founder of The Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women.
1: And I'm Dr. Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and ASEC certified sex educator.
0: Together, we're the hosts of Claim the Stage, a podcast about speaking and sisterhood. If you've been a fan, you know I've been doing this show solo, and it's been all about public speaking for years. Well, that all changes now.
1: Well, you're still talking about speaking on stage, but now we're also going to focus on the three things that you need to make an impact, your voice, confidence, and sisterhood. The show is a training ground to go from
0: dreaming to creating right and we'll still be doing interviews with expert guests plus you'll also get more personal stories and insights from us as well
1: i'm really excited to see where this goes
0: me too and slightly freaked out yeah me too welcome to the next chapter of Claim the stage Welcome, everybody, and Jolie, welcome you, especially, because it's just me and you at the moment. Right. Welcome
1: everyone to our room that only has us in it, and it's two separate rooms apart from each other.
0: With space between us that I know for sure has a bear in it, because I saw it this morning.
1: There is a bear in the in-between. Probably more than one, but I, I think... Just knowing that there's one is enough.
0: Yeah. I went for a walk this morning in the woods and I look over and there's a bear like 15 or 20 feet away. And you know what? I just said, a bear. I didn't feel scared. I also didn't feel like I needed to run. I actually wanted to run towards it and hug it. So
1: <laughs> not miscaverse. You're not. <laughs>
0: I just want to ask everyone a serious question: If you've ever been in the presence of a bear, how did you resist not hugging it?
1: (laughs) I think it it might depend what kind of bear they were in the presence of. Because we happen to live in New England, so those are black bears. They're pretty chill. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing people who live in the like northern Midwest of the U.S. don't try to hug grizzly bears. Okay, I'm, I'm guessing. If anybody wants to weigh in on that with an official declaration. I would be down to hear it, but I'm guessing that they're pretty um, tight in their bear tolerance. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Well, we have a really exciting and fun topic today, and it's one that we're both very familiar with. Yeah. And before we jump into it, I wanted to just bring up two quick things. One is we are going to be doing an episode on, I don't, it's not an episode on live coaching, but we're going to be doing live coaching where we ask our listeners to call in with questions and we'll answer them on the spot. And it reminded me of love line, which I loved. Did you watch that with Adam curl and Dr. Drew on MTV? Yeah,
1: I did. Not a lot, but like enough. Enough. Yeah.
0: I mean, I know there's like a thousand other examples, but that was the first one that came to mind for me. And I was like, I feel like I'm living out a dream. I totally, you think you're Dr. Drew or Adam curl. I would say you're Dr. (sighs) Drew. (laughs) Uh,
1: You know, well, I'll, I'll take the doctor title. I'll just, I'll just go with that. I'll just go with that.
0: Yeah. Right. That's it. Uh, I want to be Adam Carolla because I think he's pretty funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I'd be happy either way.
0: But Yeah. Before we get into that, I want to just invite everyone listening. If you have a question that you've been thinking about around the topic of speaking, of whether it's speaking on stage, speaking on the computer, speaking in a relationship, Send it to us, you know, and we will we'll we'll get on the Speaking Up
1: in classes. Speak up in class. Oh my goodness. Work. So
0: many things. Um we want to answer your questions. yeah. Yeah. So um, any questions around relationships, around career and business, these are all the topics that we have spent a lot of time working on, learning about, working through, and we want to help you. So we can do some live coaching with you on the podcast. If you don't want to use your name, that's fine. And we will help you out. And the, the idea is that we can add more value and hopefully help others who have the same question. And I remember attending a retreat with an awesome retreat facilitator who one time said, If you have a question and you're afraid to ask it, don't ask it for yourself. Ask it for the person sitting next to you who's even more terrified than you. And that always stuck with me because I realized when other people ask questions in the room, oftentimes those are the same questions I had, but I was too afraid to ask. And so you can do it for yourself and then do it for the other listeners who might be struggling with the same thing.
1: Totally. Cause we can't, we can't solve problems that we don't actually know are problems. And it's hard for me sometimes to remember where people can be at in their journey. Like I see a world filled with really amazing, confident people who look like they're speaking up, but I, by definition, won't know what they're not speaking up about. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, it's, there's always more. Yeah. Super exciting.
0: So if you're, Listening, and you're thinking, "Well, I don't want to be on the first live coaching episode. I'll wait and see how it, everyone else does." Don't do that because we're never going to get this off the ground if everyone's waiting to hear the first couple episodes. So we've gotten a few uh, inquiries from from listeners who are interested in having their questions featured on the show. But send me an email, Angela at speakersisterhood.com, and let me know your question, and maybe we'll have you on the show and can help you out. and you know, maybe Jolie will really get fired up about something.
1: Maybe I will. And (laughs) questions, being asked questions is my love language. So as a favor to me, Mm -hmm. anybody who wants to, like literally my favorite thing in the world is to be asked questions.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. So- that's the first thing I want to say. The second is, um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm drinking coffee now. This might not be a surprise to many people because I don't really talk about it, but I haven't had caffeinated coffee in at least three years, and it's so good. <laughs> I don't know how I made it through almost two years of motherhood without a cup of coffee.
1: <laughs> it was, you were, you were sober in a very specific way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Turns out I love caffeine And on the second day of having a cup of coffee, I was like, wow, I'm so focused and alert and energized. Does everyone else know about this? (laughs) It was so funny. (laughs) What have I been doing this whole time?
1: Why did you stop? What was your reason?
0: It made me really jittery. It was like beyond energized. It was almost like I was shaky and I was too it was like, I had 10 cups of coffee, you know, like my brain was just going on overdrive and I couldn't think about anything. And I couldn't sleep. Like, even if I had a cup of coffee at nine in the morning, bedtime would come and I would just be staring at the ceiling for hours. So it was like, I was so sensitive to it. And I think now my general like, um, set point for energy has now gone from like, say a 10 to like a three, (laughs) um, just because I feel like being a mom, so it's now it's bringing real. me up to like a six. So I'm still not at the same energy level with caffeine, but I feel like I'm getting back a little bit.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. And you have to, I, we have to like remember that we change. It's so weird. Ken used to think he couldn't tolerate coffee. He hated coffee. He didn't like any dark chocolate. And that, like he, didn't, he had this list of things. He loves all of them. Yeah. But like we grow and we change. Like I also didn't like cooked onions when I was a kid. And now I can't imagine starting any dish without a cooked onion. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brave new world, every day we wake up.
0: Yeah, so there's there's a theme in our episode so far today. <laughs> it's about being open to change. <laughs> and that really plays nicely with the overall theme of the episode, which is about change and about changing before you're ready. And this word ready is such an interesting word that I think we use as a placeholder for comfortable.
1: Yes. Right? <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and we think, well, I want to, let's insert what, what's the thing that people often stop themselves from doing?
1: I mean, okay, we could take this in a lot of directions, but yeah. I want to, I mean, I want to open a business. I want to start a, you know, a new educational path. I want to, I want to date again after, you know, a disaster before mm-hmm. I want to leave a relationship. I want to start a new one, like any, I want to have kids. Mm-hmm. I want to decide to not have kids and, and make it a decision, not just a, a vagueness that like anything that will change the trajectory of your life is one of those moments where we can put it off and put it off and put it off because cuz we're aware subtly that it really we are at that fork in the road so frequently in our life so frequently
0: yeah it's like almost daily really yeah and and there's a lot of those bigger questions of like should i buy a new house should i move like a lot of the things that you just stated but then there's just small things every single day like even just taking up a new hobby or deciding to redecorate a room there's always i think whenever i notice myself saying the the statement i'm not ready that is the um the big bell that's almost like going off in front of me saying there's work you need to do around this it's not like that's not something to run away from. It's something to go towards because it means there's more information for me to look into to understand why I've decided that's a roadblock. And when I go into that, that's when I start to realize there's a story I have about why I can't do this thing. And now I need to examine that story and it becomes a whole self-exploration instead of let me just put that on the back burner and avoid it and I'll think about it later. Mm-hmm. Do you have that same, like, what do you do when you hear yourself say the word I'm not ready or the words?
1: I think when I say I'm not ready, that's not the phrase that I will say. I will say to myself, I have to, and then fill in the blank. And there is almost always going to be some educational experience that I need to have before I do the next thing, whatever it is um, literally anything in my life. It could be trying out a new sex position. I would decide that I needed to learn about it formally before I did it, It anything. So I can use the, do I think I need to get specific education on something is like, that's my bell. That's my, because, and it's not that I love education. Oh my God. I love it. I'm do. Always <laughs> self-educating. And I've always involved in programs. But I use that as my my note. I was just doing it this morning. I, I made a like a, a verbal list to Ken about the things that I wanted to do because I'm I'm starting a new um a new piece of my business. And I'm like, wait a minute. The reason I'm starting it is because people have already asked me for it and I'm already providing the service. I'm there already. So I I do. I think we we each have our cue phrase. Like What's what's the thing? What's the phrase that goes off in your head? What's the thing you say out loud that is exactly that? I'm not ready. And how did you learn to cue off of it though?
0: Well, when I was first starting to examine my fear around public speaking, uh, it happened when I was 25 and I was working at a radio station and I was always just kind of the one sitting in the back of the room at all the meetings, hoping not to be called on, hoping not to make eye contact with the presenter, because that might mean that they'll notice my existence and could possibly ask me, ask me to contribute. <laughs> um and I was realizing that without having any input or having any way for people to notice me, I was being passed over for opportunities and realized like I needed to really Get over or deal with this fear of being seen and being heard, and went to Toastmasters to just try and face it. And I signed up in June, and by December I had attended a meet two meetings a month, you know, twelve meetings, and I never said a word. And I remember thinking, I'm learning public speaking because I'm watching other people give speeches.
1: And passive I'm- learning. under that is, that is the hallmark of the undergraduate to graduate transition. <laughs> Can you make the transition from passive learning to active learning? I would prefer we made that a middle school to high school transition. That's yeah. what I make my own kids do, but um, not everybody has that opportunity. Yeah. But that, out, that move, that's a big one.
0: Yeah, it is a big one. And it turns out passive learning when it comes to public speaking is so much easier than actually giving a yeah, speech. Very and-
1: comfortable. <laughs> it feels like warm in my belly. <laughs> I watched a lot of TED Talks, a lot. I was definitely learning. I, I was feeling good about it. Yeah. 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 I did
0: not achieve a goal. <laughs> yeah. And, and and you know, I felt like I was making a lot of progress because I was listening to more experienced speakers in the room give feedback to the speaker. And I was like, Oh, okay, so that's what you do with your arms, that's how you start a speech, that's how you stand. And I was really learning a lot about public speaking, but I was not becoming a better public speaker because I wasn't actually practicing it. And so in December, after six months of membership, the club president came up to me and said, gonna put you on the schedule to speak at the next meeting. And I remember just my my whole body like sank. Like I felt like I just turned into like a crushed you know ball of paper on the floor and was like, I'm not ready. And the next thing he said to me was the was the thing that changed everything for me and I continually go back to he said you'll never be ready. You just have to start and it's one of those moments where you go, obviously. <laughs> it's almost like I've been making up this this whole story that I need I need to be better at this. I need to feel more confident first. I need to know exactly what I'm gonna say. I need to make sure that I don't make any mistakes. And it's like, you can't get there without doing that work and like practicing and being bad at it and, and doing all the things that help you um, be more skilled. And so when he said, you'll never be ready, you just have to start, there was no response to that statement other than, okay. Like, you can't deny that. There's like, there's really no other, what do you say at that point? I can't the only thing like...
1: you can do is bail on the entire process. Hmm. You have to actually, you have to choose at that point to, to not ever be ready.
0: Yeah, I guess it is. It is a. It's the point where you have to decide: Am I going forward, or am I going to stay still?
1: Right, and staying still in that case is is enough. It's it's nothing. It really you can't, um, not you can't make progress standing still. And but how did you decide to do the next thing? Because I I hear you, and I I get that that moment like. What was it in you? Was it a feeling, a, a thought? What in you clicked? what that actually made you take the action rather than just not show up for the next meeting? because you showed up?
0: Yeah. well, I really I had this deep desire to do something important in the world, and I didn't know what that was, but I knew that whatever it was would require that I was able to speak to people. And I knew that I wanted to lead something, and I knew that I wanted to not be held back because of my shyness. And so when he said that, I was, all I could think was if I want to get that outcome, this needs to be taken care of right now. And it's the only thing standing in my way. So I need to figure this out and he's giving me an invitation. So I should accept that invitation and go towards it. And what a
1: great Christmas present. It was,
0: <laughs> although for the next two weeks were like the worst two weeks of my life. I was like crying constantly. I had a stomach ache for like, 14 straight days and barely slept. And the funny thing is the speech that he was inviting me to give was a four minute speech about my job. It wasn't anything complicated. I didn't need to do any research. I didn't really even need to think about what I was going to say, but I wrote the whole speech word for word. I rewrote the speech. I must've rewrote it 30 times and I kept on practicing it in my bedroom in front of the mirror and in the car. And, and, just the thought of standing in front of, I think, seven people in my club was enough to just send me into a tailspin about all of the stories I had about not being smart, not um, like being weird, being someone who doesn't stand in front of a room and speak. Like all those stories that I had created were so um, ingrained in me that the thought of standing in front of people for four minutes, kept bringing it all back up over and over again, but I had to just kind of have all of that stuff be there, be present, and then also give the speech and prove to myself that I actually do have something to say and it is okay for me to be up there. And yeah, maybe I am weird, but that's okay. (laughs) I don't even know, like that's not a problem. And after I gave that speech, I sat down in my chair and I felt proud of myself, but I also felt like there was a new light inside of me that was turned on for the first time. And I was starting to connect with myself for the first time ever, instead of constantly quieting my voice and constantly trying to be small and invisible. It was like my first time that I had ever just shown up for myself and done the really, really hard thing. And it felt like um something had like a little, yeah, like the little light had been turned on. And now I wanted to learn more about that light. And I wanted to learn more about myself. And I just kept going. And it changed my whole life. And look at what we're doing right now. We're <laughs> <laughs> there's some people listening. Some yeah. People. Like hi everybody. It, <laughs> it is absolutely wild. I, like we're about to celebrate five years running Speaker Sisterhood. I am I have 10 years as a professional speaker, five years having a podcast. It's wild. This is a life I could have never had if in that moment when that guy said to me, you'll never be ready. You just have to start. If I said, I'm just not going to come back, I would have such a different life right now. I don't even know what I would be doing, but it would not be this.
1: There's <laughs> the thing. So you. there's the magic question. If you do what you've been doing, where will you be in five years? Mm. It won't, it's, it's not going to be at your goal state. It's just not. So really take the time to imagine it. Where would you be? And you like right now, each of us must have that same thing going on. I think we're always in that process. There's always the, okay, am I going to, am I going to bank this inner fire or am I going to kindle it? Yeah. And using a vision of the future, combined with I love that you use the word desire because it's actually at the top of my paper. I, I I just jotted a few words down and I was thinking about how, um, in order to know how to begin, I need to I need to know what my full yes is. Mm-hmm. I need to know my deep desire, Not that surface level, like, no, 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 I don't want to. Not that. That's my persona. That's my my, um, my fragileness. My fragile outer shell is afraid and will absolutely not ha- give me an accurate measure of what my desire really is, my deeply felt embodied desire. But a lot of people don't even know how to identify desire. We like, we distance ourselves from it for lots of reasons. Because I'm hearing that one of the underlying, most important pieces of your story is you had a desire. If you hadn't had that desire, it might've felt more like an, an, an exercise. Like people say you should get over public speaking. So I'll get over public speaking. I mean, I've seen people jump out of planes for that very reason. They have no desire and that's fine, but they have no desire to, but they do it because they, they've been told it will be, it will help them do something. But I've also seen people jump out of metaphorical planes because they deeply desired the experience and what was on the ground when they, when they did it. Mm-hmm. And those are, they're two different, they're two different experiences. They're two different things to do. So how, how did you decide, how did you come to know that desire? Was it, was it a professional desire or was it actually like more of a whole life desire? Because I hear that you felt like, and I've heard this story from you in a couple settings. So I, I feel like I can sort of walk around the story a little bit. Was it really about being passed over professionally or was it about being
0: unseen in yourself? Yeah, it was more about being unseen. And it was a desire I'd had since I was a little kid. I remember maybe being like nine years old and waking up on a weekend and thinking to myself, I wanna go outside and sit on the deck with a notebook and a pen and write down what I want to do when I get when I grow up and I did that and I remember going to my parents' desk they had like a roll top desk and I opened it and I saw a yellow legal pad and I thought that seems really professional I should use that <laughs> and yes. and and there was a pen and I don't know if you remember or if your parents did this, but I wasn't allowed to use pens when I was a kid because I would just write all over myself. So I was only allowed to use pencils.
1: I was allowed to write all over myself.
0: Okay, <laughs> I was that kid. Pens were <laughs> off limits, but I was like, I'm gonna take this pen and this legal pad and take it outside. And I like, I was so sneaky about it.
1: <laughs> dun, dun, dun 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 dun! I like it. It's your Mission it- Impossible. You're doing it.
0: Yeah. So I went went out, I sat on the deck and I made a, I made a list. I wanted to be the first female president. And I also still a time, still a chance. Still, yeah, still open. That job is still available. And, and I just kept thinking, I want to do something important. I want to make a mark. I want to help people. I want to do something that like makes my life feel worth it. And I was nine. And my dad came outside and he said, we have to rake. And I said, dad, I'm making a list of what I'm gonna do to change the world when I get older. He's like, great, um, that rake right there has your name on it. So why don't you (laughs) put that notebook down? And he didn't notice I had the pen. I was like all freaked out. I'm like, oh no, he's gonna see the pen and this is gonna be all.
1: (laughs) No wonder you have a giant pen, Angela. No wonder I know. you do. I know. Angela so has a giant pen.
0: I have a pencil, a giant pencil, and a giant pen.
1: No wonder. Um,
0: yeah, which will be exposed in my upcoming new headshots. Nice. Looking, look out for that, everybody. Um, anyway, it's hard to really say the origin of that feeling of wanting to do something important because it felt like it just came out of me. Like that's your genius.
1: That's okay. it. That's your weird. You're, you're like you're you're weird you're genius you're diamond you're like the you you are you the the oak tree that is already inside the acorn that's you your soul's code like I, so i just quoted like five different authors in like one sentence <laughs> but there are a million ways to say if we read someone's life backwards if we were to read a life backwards teleologically it's it's easy so you look back and you're like oh there's the thread it's really easy for me to read the thread of sexuality throughout my life. Like, whoa, that informs everything I do. But when I was eight and masturbating, I did not know that that was like part of my calling. Mm-hmm. Did not know that. Yeah. I don't think my parents thought that that was like she's doing her life's work. <laughs> let's leave. It's it's part of her process. Although they weren't really, they they never shamed me about it, so I, they did allow me to have it be part of my process, luckily. But seriously. We do weird things when we're kids and those weird, big, giant air quotes around them, because what I mean is your genius, your unusual characteristics. Yeah, Mm -hmm. go find them. They probably have something to tell you. I easily can see the line. It's not just that one. I can easily see the line reading my life backwards. And that helps me figure out what I think I'm not ready for now. Like, okay, if I use my imagination to cast forward to my 50-year-old self, my 70-year-old self, and then look back. What do I want the line to look like? What do I, like, what do I want to have pulled out of me right now to create the through line of my life?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're not small things.
0: No, no, so, not at all. And get on it. <laughs> I, when I was in eighth grade, I started to take a deep interest in redesigning my clothes and whatever my mom bought me, I would turn into something else and I would add puffy paint and I would cut up other clothes and add designs and things to the shirts and put like different um, threads throughout the pants so that there'd be like, you know, a red stitch along the side of the pants instead of just the regular blue jeans or whatever. And all, everything was altered in some way. And my parents were not fans of this. And I would say my friends were not particularly supportive of it either because when I looked weird and stood out, it kind of made them stand out too and not in a way that they wanted to stand out. So I'd come into school and they would say, what are you wearing now? (laughs) And there was this part of me that felt like excited by the attention because people were somehow um, stirred up by it. They were uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. of what I was doing. But then there was another part of me that did not feel accepted and didn't feel like I belonged at all. But I would have rather be um, myself, you know, and be able to express myself through my clothes than try to fit in because that felt totally wrong. And so, like you said earlier about being unseen, like that part of my life, it was, you know, I was 12, 13, 14 years old. That's a really important formative time when you start thinking about like, who am I in the world? And what do people think of what they see when they look at me or what, what do they see and what do I think they're thinking of me? And I just believed that I was weird and I wouldn't fit in. And that was not, not that that was okay but that that was gonna be a big part of my story. And I still, to this day, like I've said on this podcast many times, like I felt like an alien and, but I've come to realize that there's nothing wrong with that if I am an alien. Which I'm still not hundred percent sure on, but
1: <laughs> I know you have vacillated. Would you like to be an alien?
0: Probably, yeah. I've been kind of disappointed in humanity lately, so maybe I'll just distance myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who could resonate with that. My move when I when I feel like I'm weird is to go down and in. So I'm like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig deeper into my weirdness and be weirder. It never occurred to me that I wasn't human, but I'm married to somebody who definitely felt like an alien. So I know that that feeling, I could imagine it leading you to a place that it feels natural to be unseen, Mm -hmm. to be unknown and to be misunderstood. Yeah. Then one of the things about public speaking is you, I mean, you're, you're explicitly trying to be understood you're you're attempting to communicate something. It's not mm. performance art most of the time. Sometimes it's performance art where you're trying to 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 communicate in a, an esoteric way. You're not actually trying to be clear. Yeah. But that's the rare instance. Most of the time we're trying to get something across. Not just yeah. in an educational way, but like in a communicating soul to soul, like the our beingness, right?
0: Yeah. I wanted to mention a couple episodes ago, you asked listeners to email me to tell me how I'm inspiring. And I wanted to share the feedback because everyone's said the same thing. <laughs> and, they, and Did I didn't... anybody
1: write and say, oh, Angela, so not inspiring. Nobody no. wrote that, right? Nobody
0: wrote that. Okay. But and also nobody wrote. I'm really impressed with the amount of work that you do. Keep it up. Nobody talked about that. Either. More content. <laughs> I've noticed you've had less content lately, and I'm feeling much less inspired.
1: <laughs> much less inspired. It makes me sad. Sad in my sad in my heart. Yeah, that's it. The
0: the feedback was actually you. It was along the lines of you decide you're going to do something, and even if you're scared, you do it anyway. Which is exactly what this episode is about. So. When I read that and heard that, I thought, so I'm not actually, I don't actually have to work at that. It's not, that's not work for me. That's actually me being me. And yeah. people just appreciate that about me without me having to make a lot of effort. That's cool. Being, <laughs> it was very relaxing.
1: <laughs> being known, being seen that so So that's love in my book. Love is the the expression of love, seeing someone, being seen as you actually are like that's like being loved for your being being appreciated for your being you you be that way and that's the magic i love that yeah. i i'm not so, at all surprised that that's what you heard cuz yeah i mean what is that you say about stop waiting start creating you you do all the time you yeah. make polka dot curtains and you, and you cut up your t-shirts and you write books and you start new adventures. And it is inspiring. And it's affirming for all the people who are like, I might not be ready. There are other people out there risking that not ready feeling. And you provide that.
0: Thanks. There's so much on the other side. I hope that anyone listening today Leaves this episode thinking there's so much out there for me, if I am willing to take that step. And last episode, when we talked about how to actively avoid your destiny, that was almost like the prequel to this episode to thinking about, okay, if I'm not avoiding my destiny, what would it be like to take some steps toward it? And yeah, my, my motto, my life motto for at least the last 10 years has been stop waiting, start creating. And the reason I say that all the time is because the creation is, is where the information lies. That's where you get to find out more about yourself and you get to be on the adventure and doing the experiment and finding out is this dream, the dream I want. And when you can separate yourself from win, lose, from right, wrong, from success, failure, and just go into it and see what happens, that's when life begins. That's really what life is. And we we avoid it so much because we don't want to be wrong and we don't want to waste time or we don't want to waste money or we don't want to look bad. And it's like, just reframe the way that you see those steps and think about it as there is no wrong. It's just information. And it's an opportunity to get to know yourself and to possibly have a totally different life that could feel so much more rewarding and complete and meaningful and purposeful and connected. and those things feel so good when we just allow ourselves to go towards them. So you said, Jolie, that you have a story you wanted to share about your relationship to doing things before you're ready.
1: my <laughs> my, my relationship to doing things before you're ready is complete entire, all-encompassing. i I think I am one of those people who, tends to leap out of airplanes before checking her parachute. Hmm. Um, Not, not a sensible decision. So I'm, I actually err on the way on the other side of like, yep, I go. I just, I go. And I have thrown caution literally to the wind. Um, The way I usually put it is I'm like, yep, threw my life into the wood chipper. And I was like, it'll be fine. But it means that I've made a lot of really, um, big leaps. I have I have leapt over big chasms. And so one of the ways that that shows up is is in my relationships. I I needed to to take gigantic leaps in order to have any relationships at all. When I was a kid, my parents were um my mom was essentially agoraphobic and my and my father was just not a connector. And they just didn't have any friends. Like they didn't have, there was nothing, there was no connection anywhere. So there's no modeling. And then I was, I was very, I was heavily bullied in school, like the whole time. I had some friendships, but they were, it was confusing and up and down. And so the, just the word relationship was confusing to me and aspirational, not achievable. And yet I've always, I always wanted, to have lots of people around me. I always wanted to have lots of connections. Um, when I was little, I was the person who would like gather a whole group of people. Like I would gather all of the people who I could find around me and try to do stuff. But I, I didn't know then that that skill of, of gathering people to me was like an essential part of me. So I, I let it become like, oh, I'm needy. I let it become a story about me being needy or wanting attention or being um, or being overly dramatic, like because I would make shows and I would I would I would you know, I made a circus in my backyard, two different two years running, two circuses. <laughs> um, that the message that it was, um, that you were supposed to stay smaller and you were supposed to like want to be alone that like introversion as like a, as a goal state, (laughs) um, left me feeling completely wrong. So you said alien. I just felt wrong. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel alien, but I, I felt so entirely wrong that I, I stopped beginning relationships. I basically waited until, um, a boy proposed to me when I was 17 and, um, poor thing. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said, yes, that was not a good choice. Um, I feel bad for him. I waited till then. And then basically like, just stopped relating to people for like six years, just stayed in my little cave of like, okay, now you have one person in your life manage that. It was deeply limiting.
0: What made you finally decide to change that?
1: Having a child. I had my first baby when I was 23 and I was so alone. I was so, so, so alone. And it wasn't the alone of, oh, I want peaceful space around me. It was the alone of essential loneliness. Like I I started to feel like I was invisible, like literally invisible, like people couldn't see me in rooms. And I started being really attention seeking in, in bad ways with my partner. Like I I was married to somebody who I, I believed I loved and I think I did, but I don't think I acted in loving ways. I started being needy and grabby and, and controlling. And, um, I was demanding in lots of ways. And it was when I had this baby in front of me and I was like, Ooh, well, I don't want to do that to her. She inspired in me the courage to to go out into the world and and figure out what it meant to actually make friends to go find people who would relate to me and who would see me really see me for me it was never about whether i could speak up in a room i've always felt very comfortable speaking up but i have spoken up and felt completely invisible billions of times it's um that moment of of having this tiny little baby who needed me all the time and I was very, very lonely. That was, um, it was like a, it was a watershed moment because from there I started connecting to people and finding out that in fact, people liked me. I had like, I, there were ways that I could connect that were really, they were, I was filling gaps that needed to be filled. The, the rooms that I was in, they needed leaders and I loved leading. So I it's it was like I discovered that little girl in me who had set up circuses and and made enormous leaf houses and had orchestrated all the neighborhood kids to to come to them even though they didn't really want to found her again and found out that she could in fact build a world around her. Yeah. I've had to learn that lesson twice more since then.
0: Only twice, that's good.
1: Only twice, yeah. But <laughs> but both times through deep isolation. First, when I got divorced, total and complete, like deep, deeply isolated. And then when I closed my gym, that like there was a community around me. And then I fell into like the hole of I'm alone. And I did graduate school distance. So those people weren't with me, I was Mm -hmm. alone. So for me, noticing that I am, that I'm in my perpetual habit of the stage that will come before me stepping out. Me stepping out into connecting to other people, saying what I need to say, creating the things I need to create is has always been preceded by a time of feeling utterly alone. And I don't think that's any different really for them feeling alien, mm-hmm. like at its core. I think it's like, oh, yep, there's... And so the fear is... It isn't it's not obvious to me because it's it's isolation that's the obvious thing mm-hmm. and i learned how to identify what my yes is um by you know educating myself i i do obsess over educational opportunities i love them and when i learned to say a full yes it became obvious that i needed to say yes to relationships even though i know that being in relationship is messy mm-hmm. it's messy that's that's what it is there will be hurts. There will be bumps. There will be times when you wish it wasn't happening. Um, But, but not doing that, not connecting to people leaves me feeling invisible. And that is far worse than the fear of what connection might,
0: might bring. So what do you do when you're feeling that isolation and you're wanting to create connection or you're wanting to, I don't know, work through that? What, Is that, what's the process you go through? So
1: I said that I'm a person who, who leaps before she looks, you know, like that, that's me. Um, I try to find something that looks way too big and do that. Um, incrementalism is not my friend here. I am not really good at doing the, like the next tiny step, though. It is something I teach. I teach it a lot. I teach micro steps. I think micro steps work for most people, but for me i have found that the best thing is well to show up to speaker sisterhood and talk the first day even though i was terrified of being in this group of women mm-hmm. um i need i have to allow myself to feel the full experience all at once um because when i do i have universally without fail found that the that experience that i was so afraid of is actually exhilarating and So I think that's just practice and, and like realizing now, now I can say, okay, this is scary. Yeah. I have to move toward it and do it in a big way. Don't do it in a small way. Mm -hmm. For some people, I think small steps are the right choice. I think that there is, there are different personality types. There are different ways of being in this world and micro steps work really, really well. But for me, I calm my nervous system. I set up my self-care plan and I'm, I do really clear active self-care. So I set that all up and then i take action in a big way.
0: Can we talk about each of those in a little bit sure. more detail? So when you say you calm your nervous system, what does that look like?
1: So i use a few different methods um but i like basically working from like polyvagal theory, thinking about the nervous system as a as a set of as a response to threat that can send us into to speak about it in the like most clear way that freeze response, your, your fight response, your, your, your flight, flight response, or your fawn response, right? All of these things that can happen when our nervous system gets excited, fear is going to send us into one of these states. Like we're, we're going to have a go-to state that we, that we go to. And so to calm my nervous system, I need, I actually need stimulation rather than like, some people will put themselves through um, a process of like slow meditative, deep, you know it, it's a it's a quieting and calming for me, calling my nervous system involves um, stimulation. I need to like put my hands under really hot water um or or um, get in a hot shower or I need some stimulation in order to to sort of leap over that gap. Um, and then I can do my calm breathing <laughs> and I can and I can reach into a whole bunch of somatic tools that are a little bit easier to teach. Either live or on video, um, but it's a, it was about figuring out what my nervous system needs, and one of the things it needs. I mean, I can feel it right now. I'm sort of excited, and it and there's this desire to um, to feel something, to remember that I'm in my body, because I when I feel too much, when I when I get the excited like like my my heart's beating too fast and all of that, I actually leave my body. Rather than I, I'm not in it feeling that I leave it. So I use sensation to call me back to my body. I also use, you know, just the standard techniques of like, okay, calling all of myself back to me, all the pieces of myself that have, have left the building, calling them back. Deep slow breaths, you know, box breathing or or just slow um meditative breathing, belly breathing.
0: I have a question. I don't I don't want to ask this question. <laughs>
1: Uh-oh. Ask.
0: Oh no! <laughs> this is going back to Laura Khalil's episode, and what you just said ten minutes ago about masturbation, using masturbation as a tool for calming your nervous system. I don't want to ask this question, but how do you feel? About, how do you feel about that? How do I feel
1: about that? I love that you asked that question. Look how much you've grown. <laughs> I know. I'm not even that
0: dark red. You're right not. Now. You
1: don't match your shirt. You're fine. <laughs> You're totally fine. So <laughs> if, so if you have done, um, if you've done enough of your, your, um, introspective, um, self-reflection about how masturbation works for you, that masturbation is pleasurable because for some people it's not for some people, they're still like finding their, their way, or they, they may be pre-orgasmic. Um, and so if, if it puts you into this mindset of like goal oriented, rather than pleasure oriented,
0: You mean I would, like trying to get an orgasm,
1: trying to get an orgasm in, a, in an, un, like in a, in a fearful way. Like so, if you've never had an orgasm and you're, you're still learning how to masturbate, um, which is a thing that happens to lots of women. Um, if you're still learning that, then that would go into my goal setting, like my, my, like my skill training. <laughs> and I wouldn't use that as a calming technique, but I've done a lot of pleasure work and a lot of body work. So absolutely, I use that. Absolutely. And one of the ways I use it is not orgasm seeking. So I'll like forego the vibrator for for me personally, forego the vibrator this time and just be with my body. Use my hands to touch not just my clitoris, but to really explore my body and find pleasurable ways. You were talking about like self-touch. Yeah, like just stroking parts of your body and and being in it, absolutely. Hmm. So it's not an appropriate way for me to self-stimulate when I'm say about to give a speech. So I don't do it then instead I'll, you know, wash my hands for a long time. But (laughs) I do think, I think it's a great question because yeah, that can work really well.
0: Well, it's also making me think about the pleasure experiment, which you put together a few months ago. And we talked about on our pleasure episodes, if anyone wants to go back and listen, the link to the pleasure experiment is in the show notes. And what you did is you broke down a bunch of different ways to experience pleasure through your senses. And so if you're, if you're listening to this episode thinking, well, I don't know how to calm my nervous system. I don't know if I like more sensation or if I like to do box breathing that those experiments can help you discover that part, right? It can help you figure out what would be calming to me before having a difficult conversation, giving a speech, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is that you feel like you're not ready to do.
1: That's part of the process of, of maturing is Mm -hmm. figuring out in an ongoing process. I'm 44, like this is an ongoing process of what works for me and pleasure gets left off so much. It gets, it, we, we think about how can I calm or how can I manage or how can I produce? But pleasure is, it exists for a reason. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's, I don't think pleasure exists for no reason we perceive pleasure for some reason. Yeah. So yeah, let's utilize that. And if you're feeling disconnected from it, the pleasure experiment's a great place to start because it's short and easy and really fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think there's this like connection we make that when we're going to do something that is uncomfortable, then it's going to be hard and we're going to struggle and we're going to suffer. But imagine if we could go towards the dream while also feeling pleasure. Yep. So <laughs> That's so exciting.
1: I do that. So I actually do. I use orgasm to work through big, big things. Like if I have a terrifying leap that I have to make, I will intentionally masturbate to orgasm while like, um, like saying the phrase, like saying the the thing that I need to get over saying it. So I I tie I bundle these two things together. Um, I I like rewire my 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 brain my nervous system to find to feel this in a in a place where I feel pleasure. It's it's an advanced move because it can also be totally overwhelming. But I I love that. So like when I was writing my dissertation, when I needed to defend my dissertation. I masturbated my way through that a lot.
0: Wow. A lot. I can't believe I'm just finding this out.
1: This See, is- these are the conversations we have. Yeah. I have to be bolder in my expression. I'm it's because I'm such a wallflower, Angela. I don't share these things. <laughs> yes this That's is
0: funny. <laughs> I need you to be more forthcoming.
1: That's me. it. That's what people say. Okay.
0: <laughs> this is exciting. I love I love that we're kind of coming back to this subject that we spent three or four episodes on a few months yeah. ago and thinking about how to connect it to making big changes in our life and being able to reframe what that process looks like. So you said you calm your nervous system and then you figure out your self-care plan. Yeah. And the self-care plan, I, I feel like it's just, we think self-care and immediately imagine a bubble bath, but what is your self-care plan look like and any ideas you have for people who are starting to put those together?
1: absolutely so first off think of self care as, uh, as something that's active rather than something that's a reward so the pleasure experiments a great place to th- this is a great pairing um because a self care plan is a set of things or steps that you can take when you're overstimulated or when you've gone to fear response or when you find that you are feeling out of your depth or doubting yourself it's a set of steps and some of the things that i include for anybody. And I, I have students set these up at the beginning of class. Like if I'm going to teach human sexuality, the very first week, their homework assignment is to set up their self-care plan. Because we talk about self-care, but we often talk about it as like, as an after. And it's the plan that makes all the difference. So in the plan for me is a playlist. Um, And it's specifically labeled in my Spotify. Like, so, and it's specifically labeled and my partner knows where it is and knows what it is too. So he can actually put it on. If I have become overstimulated, he can actually just put that playlist on. I can always shut it off, but he can put it on. And sometimes that's enough to draw me out. Music's a wonderful archetypal experience of of beingness, right? So it can get me back down into my body. Um, I'll always include, uh, I always have a phone, a friend, like uh, the name of at least one person who I can reach out to who I have agreed to hold space for me, so you're you're my person on that list. Um, and then I have physical things. It seems so strange to people when I first ask them to do this, but make yourself a list of the physical things that you that do calm you. A, ba- a, a back scratch is a huge deal to me. But when I'm hyperstimulated, when I'm totally out of my mind. I'm not going to remember to ask for a back scratch. It doesn't, it doesn't feel synchronous. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I have it written on a list. And yeah, if you were here last week when I was panicking about something, you would have seen, I I was asking for a back scratch. Why? Because it put me back in my body. And at the end of it, and it was a long back scratch. I think it was like, and I I have a body brush for it too. Super awesome. If you like scratchies do that. (laughs) Um, and you can do that to yourself too. Like you can do your legs and your arms. Um, And that put me back in my body. And I was able to do something really hard afterwards. It took like 15 minutes um, to get me back in my body. But then I was here and I was able to do the thing and and do it with pleasure because I was back in my body and I was no longer in a story nine years old. (laughs) I I was I was here. Um, So a self-care plan is about soothing showing yourself gratitude. So, you know, positive things that you can say, making a list of all the things you've survived. That works really well for me. My survival list blows me away. Like, oh, I survived 100% of my bad days. And they've been really freaking bad, really bad. And yet here I am. And I did a lot of them with grace. So making an actual list and then reading them like, wow, okay. That's real Mm -hmm. connection. So soothing, gratitude, connection, and then building, making is a really good um, self-care activity for me. And I think it's a great self-care activity for a lot of people, but it might be that you don't know your making mode. So some people like to cook, some people like to knit or crochet or paint or build. Um, For me, it's, if it's self-care, it's probably going to be about blobs of watercolor paint on a page, meaning absolute in with no intent to paint a picture, just, just that or knitting because it's so repetitive. Mm-hmm. So those are things that are on my self-care plan. So when I'm in a moment, all I have to do is look at the list. There it is. Um, when I've moved, like when I've needed to like move my whole office and everything feels too big, there's the list. It's not. It's so much easier to act on a on a list and to enroll and recruit your self care team. Like w- that's what communal care is all about, right? It's about having a community who have a, who agreed to care for each other. So I provide that for my my kids here. They are, but the thing is, my kids are also they're growing up. The babies are all fourteen, which is wild, and the oldest one is twenty one. They have grown up so much and have learned so much about this kind of stuff that they also will reach out. Sometimes they'll see me you know, spinning, spinning up about my work, my life, how big it is. And they'll offer one of these moves without even requests like, oh, hey, what about, what about, what about music? Or what about, do you need a hug? And, yeah. and it's as simple as that. So the connection piece without it feeling like you're, you have to give yourself permission for this, not to be about needing, but about returning to pleasure, the pleasure of connection, the pleasure of community, feeling held by your people in some way. Yeah. Physical or otherwise.
0: Yeah. It just feels so, um, I think I I did all of this work for so long by myself without asking for help, without having a self-care plan that a lot of it just felt like it was Um, A continuous struggle. And I got so used to the struggle for years and years and years that hearing you say this now, it's like, I didn't, it didn't have to be so hard. I didn't have to be so isolated and lonely and, you know, like in the trenches every day, like, okay, I got to do another hard thing and tomorrow's the next hard thing. It's like, there was actually a much kinder way to approach all of it. And yeah, maybe I would have ended up at the same place, but I could have treated myself better throughout every step. And hearing you give all of these examples and talk about soothing and a, a self-care team and to talk about making things like all of that feels so um, uplifting and it feels so connecting and warming. And it's like, oh, oh yeah, so I can keep having this life and also feel really good the whole time. That's That seems like hard to imagine, <laughs> but also exactly what I want
1: right no, yeah. normalizing the pain of isolation and and I mean isolation in a, a really pure form like we can be surrounded by people and be isolated yeah I, I, but when we normalize the pain of isolation we move toward individualism really quickly believing imagining that we have to do everything alone and that okay there we go every single time it loops back to the same stuff mm-hmm. if we want to smash the patriarchy if we want to shift a culture of white supremacy then we have to undermine these these core aspects that say your productivity is all that matters suffer through it on on your own pull yourself up by your bootstraps do all the things and we have to start we have to start with ourselves and at the same time also shift how we watch other people when people don't show up for us the way we want what if we engage with them about how they how we can show up for each other in ways that work. Right. Yeah. So when somebody lets you down rather than, rather than encouraging further isolation for each of us, we can have a call in, we can, we can move toward each other
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's powerful work.
0: It is, you know, it's reminding me of the red tents and yeah, um, when women had their period, they would go in the red tent and they would spend maybe a week being just being on their period and being taken care of and resting and honoring that part of their process and their part of their cycle. And that was a cultural expectation. And unfortunately today, the cultural expectation is not to take care and go slow and, and to honor each part of the process and the and to cycle. Pretend
1: it's not even happening.
0: And to pretend it's not even happening, just fight through it, just go through it, just act like you're fine. You can put on a brave face and, but what what do we get in exchange for that we get burnt out we feel unseen we feel um disconnected from our own body
1: i was just going to say disconnected from nature we are yeah. unecological in that moment yeah and it's... it disconnects men um and people who don't have periods from that like there's something very cyclical about that and if we all if the whole world oriented around that reality the reality of the moon, the reality of periods, the reality of the seasons changing, if we were oriented around that, we're less isolated. We're And then we're, we're tied together. The cycles tie us all together. And it's yeah. not about where you are in the cycle even. It's just about, oh, we're all in a cycle. Mm-hmm. Where are you in your experience? Where am I? How right. can we meet? Where can we overlap? Where do we need to take space?
0: Yeah. And changing that cultural expectation starts with you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and we can't just hope that it's going to happen and someone's going to tell us, okay, this is how you have to treat yourself now. It's like, no, like this is how you can operate oh. this way on your own. And then your friends will see you do it and your coworkers, and they'll start saying, wait, what are you doing? And then maybe they'll be curious about it.
1: And if you do need somebody to tell you, I'm telling you right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what this whole episode is. That's
1: the, the whole thing. It's this, So this is, um, I'm not generally prescriptive. I, I tend to be a phenomenologist. I like to observe what's, the, what's happening and work with it. But in this case, I believe that a little prescription is helpful. I, I prescribe an active self-care plan to my students for a reason, because it works. And because when we start taking our, so, our, our self-care um, seriously and, and tuning in, like it, it opens us up to having more presence to share with the world. When we neglect that, we can become resentful of the world. And resent then leads to more isolation. Yeah. So if we want to, if you, if you have any part of your, your um, your your goals, your mission, your vision, your purpose for being here, if any part of that is about making the world better, you could just start by having a really well-defined, active self-care plan, and then using it—it's a great
0: start. It is. I love that. What, so earlier you said you calm your nervous system, you use your self-care plan. Wasn't there a third thing?
1: Yeah, the third thing is—is a—it's a—it's a little series of things. I inventory where I am, and make a judgment. I, may, I make a, a discerning judgment about where I am, and then I take—I take an action. And those three steps happen very, very quickly for me because I happen to be um, a ve- I, I'm a fairly fast thinker and I like to take action quickly. But they might take a while. But I don't let myself just do the inventory and assess. At the end of the assessing, I have to take an action. So it's it's the- sometimes this is like like literally 15 seconds. You know what do I have going for me? Where am I? Okay, here's the action. But sometimes that's several days. I'm in the middle of a process right now that I'm like, oh, this is going to take a few weeks to fully inventory what I have in the situation to assess the the world and then take the action. But I put a deadline. I, I put a deadline on it. I, I love those marks, those those lines in the sand for myself because crossing them is like crossing off a list it's yeah. so satisfying.
0: It is. The yeah. green check mark.
1: The green check mark. So I give myself those those dates as a reward. I in fact the word deadline is silly. I need a new word. If anybody has a better word for deadline because it's not a dead like deadline sounds so horrendous. Yeah. This is actually a reward. The reward is I'm going to take the action which means I will have done the thing that I was so scared to do. I, there was no like the feeling of walking off the stage after my TEDx. That's a good feeling, right? Yeah. The feeling of sending my dissertation off, like th- that, that, that send, like, wow, that's, that's the reward. Mm-hmm. And you, I can feel it because I can feel the cascade and I can feel the resonance of it right now. Like my, my skin remembers the feeling of relief that yeah. those things are. Yeah. So I want a reward word for that. I've never thought about how deadline doesn't, it doesn't properly evoke the mood that I get.
0: You don't like the feeling of thinking of the word dead when dead. you accomplish something? <laughs>
1: um, it's true that I use mortality as motivation all the time, but you know, i my family has a birthday dirge. So <laughs> That's right. like we have a dirge that we sing on birthdays. So we're, we're built different.
0: Do you want to so, sing it?
1: Should I? It's never been... <laughs> i don't think it's ever been publicly (laughs) it's up to you oh my god okay how about okay yeah you know what there's no moment like the present right this is one of those okay see that was 15 seconds inventory assess yeah okay this is literally (laughs) what my family my father's family sings and here's the thing we all find it funny and encouraging so this is not a bad thing but we sing happy birthday happy birthday there is trouble in the air people dying everywhere happy birthday that's it <laughs> it's the birthday dirge
0: if anyone's wondering about if anybody's background. wondering
1: yeah so if you were wondering how i got where i am that song might explain some things yeah I decided. I decided. Uh, we also posed by gravestones. We're. It's. We got some weird stuff going on. But um, when, when my kid, my own kids were growing up, that song became sort of representative of how I wanted to incorporate a childhood that was very, very challenging and offered a lot of trauma. But I wanted to keep some pieces of it that actually worked for me. I liked the birthday dirge because it was weird because it did make me stand out. And because in my family, because I grew up on a, on a farm a little bit, you know, there was death, death was treated as a normal part of life, just like sex was. And this let me deal with massively difficult life experiences with my head held high and with my heart intact. And so what I offer my own children, the option, they don't have to hear it. But the thing is, as they get older, they, they, they choose it. And they, and it's been part of our tradition of like, right, you're getting older. And this is your time to be alive. Because in fact, you won't always be.
0: Hmm.
1: It's super real, man.
0: It's, it's pretty perfect for this episode, actually, because, <laughs> you know, we only have so much time. Yeah, there's know.
1: trouble in the air, people.
0: Yeah, it's time, it's time to get moving. I think, I I don't know if I should say this on the air, off the air. I'm just going to say it. And if if you feel like I, you don't want people to hear it, I'll just cut it out. But it's been, it's been really fun watching you build your business this year. And you've been really wrestling with what you want to promote and how you want to promote yourself and creating courses and packages. And, and I think the thing that you're Uh, struggling with is like, how do I want people to see me? How do I want, how do I want to promote myself? What do I want to sell? And this process that you just laid out the calming, the self-care, the inventory, like this is to you probably a simple series of steps. This is your genius. Like this is a $10,000 program that could change someone's life if they implemented it, because this is what is missing from the world. And it's the thing that each person, if they really did it, they, they could do anything. And it's a process that is inviting you to get to know yourself and to also make big changes in your life. And because you do it so naturally, you probably don't recognize how valuable it is, like the same way that I don't see my genius and other people can. But as you're outlining it, I'm like, oh, oh my God, this is the the key. This is the secret, the sauce, you know, this is it. And so um, I hope that you really like, you know, take that in.
1: I, I hear you. And I think, I think this is, I think this week is very pivotal. There's something. Um, and you know what? It's probably exactly time, right? The spring is always very dark for me. I had a lot of loss tied to spring, um, which is so backwards. It's so anti-Persephone of me. Um, <laughs> but there's a, there was a, there's a lot of feelings and a lot of going into the underworld in springtime. And here we are, I'm, I'm just about to come out of it. And I can feel how, what you're saying is true. Like I wrote those, I, I knew what, the title was, and I wrote those down five seconds before the episode started, because they are they're okay. innate to me, and I have a hundred things like that that, because I have been really consciously building the way out of the hole I was in. I was raised in a sort of literal hole. It's a valley. It's a little teeny valley. It's true. And <laughs> and and I live now at on the t- at the top of the hill. You do. right next door to it. I love my family, but. The way that I experienced being raised in that hole has taken, yeah, the the next 30 years (laughs) to get out of. At 14, 14 was my turning point. I read the whole psychology section at the library and realized that in fact, I was going to have a lot of digging to do. And it's just taken 30 years, but I think I can shortcut that for people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to take 30 years.
0: Well, it sounds like you just did that in what you laid out for them. And I think- there's so much more to talk about on this subject, but for today, I think we covered some really great steps to get started to doing what you want to do before you're ready. Because what we know is that ready is, is not a real thing. You're never, no one's ever really ready. You can always come up with another excuse, another reason not to start, but if you're able to put this plan in place that you just outlined, it should make taking that st- next step feel a little more comfy and, and easier to to accomplish so i'm glad we covered this today which is awesome
1: and the dirge had its like first public debut
0: i know so many surprises today (laughs) all right well well, yeah thank you and um if anyone has comments we always love to hear your feedback you can leave reviews on on all the places you listen but you can also email me anytime angela at speakersisterhood.com so thanks Jolie and I hope you love listening as much as we love making this show. If so, tell us by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. Claim the Stage is a production of Speaker Sisterhood and is produced in the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Music is composed by Kelly Vogel of Sound Passage. All right, that does it for us this week. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. Bye for now.